This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lisa Leong with you. Nova Wheatman knew she was going to be a writer when she was still in primary school. Not that she'd ever finished a story. She started them all the time, but between devouring Judy Bloom, begging her parents for a horse, and cameo appearances in her dad's ads, she never got to the end. That was until her 12-year-old mind came up with a fairly disturbing tale involving jelly. Then Nova had finally finished writing her first book. And several more came later. As an adult, she began writing books for children, books like Elsewhere Girls and The Edge of Thirteen. But last year, Nova stopped writing about time-travelling girls who love to swim or tweens just trying to fit in. She found herself writing about grief. Her partner Aidan died in the middle of one of Melbourne's lockdowns. He'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And from that deep well of grieving and healing came Nova's newest book, The Jammer. Hi, Nova. Hi, Lisa. What were you writing as a kid? Well, I was mainly writing Agatha Christie murders. <laughs> but of course, Agatha Christie murders require structure, of which I am still dreadful at, and I was certainly bad at it as a child. But I loved the idea of murdering people with unlikely weapons. And so I had a box. I, had, I carried a case with me with unlikely weapons in it and used to bang away on my typewriter and write murder mysteries. Tell me about this typewriter. Oh, it was a big black... I can't remember what they're called. Those kind of classic round key, very ancient looking, n- nothing kind of fancy, no Olivetti for me. It was, you know, 1920s style, I think. Um, and mum used to have to change the ribbon for me because, of course, it ran out all the time. And I love the sound of the keys and that kind of very mechanical sense of pressing a button and then using whiteout to fix any mistakes. And this mysterious box with <laughs> props and weapons. I still have it, actually. Really? I have, yeah, it's a suit. It's a little tiny. I, I remember buying it, and it was at the primary school fete that I went to. And actually, when you open it, I think it's got 20 cents written in a black kind of pen on the inside, on the green velvet. I think it's green, um, not velvet, but some sort of felt or something on the inside. And it's just a sort of small kind of um, suitcase. And I had all sorts of things in it. I had my, my horse's horseshoe in there. Well, not my horse, the horse I borrowed. Uh, a fake gun and something to kind of strangle someone with and all sorts of things in there that I could use as weapons. So when did you finally finish one of your stories? So I was 12. I was in grade six and I co-wrote this book called The Jelly People with my best friend at the time, Kathy Greenwood-Smith. And we wrote it because we had this extraordinary school principal called Mr. White, who I loved to bits. And he just knew that I was going to be a writer. I think he sensed it. I think it was one of those teacher moments. And, you know, this was a principal. This wasn't my teacher. And he asked Kathy and I to write this story. So we wrote this this book. It's, it's actually quite long and it's typed. It's just agonisingly typed. You can sense the sort of sweat on the page. And it's got structure and it has this sort of adventure story of this bunch of kids, the kids that we liked, I think, from our class. There's only about 10 of them who went up in a plane with our with Mr. White, with our favourite teacher. It's like a post-apocalyptic world where everyone is turned, everyone we didn't like gets turned to jelly. So the world is turned to jelly while the kids in the plane are okay. But this green cloud covers the earth, turns the world to jelly. And then the plane lands and the kids have to work out what's happened. And then they have to work out how to repopulate the earth, which is the very end of the story, which they do with this stuff called grow it. (laughs) Nick, you've brought the original copy of the book. I have. I love the title because it's actually in jelly writing. It is. in My best is that my teacher spilled his coffee on it, so it's gone all sort of stained and and messy looking. And one other part that I have noticed about this beautiful book is that it's got copyright. (laughs) That you managed to write copyright Smithman. 1982. Yeah, half of half of our names. Very inspired, Lisa. <laughs> and so, who did turn into jelly? Oh, just everybody else. So there were there was there's mafia bosses. There's um, all the animals are okay though. So there's there's at some point these animals escape. These wolves escape, and they eat Georgie, <laughs> and they eat Georgie because at the time. 
Georgie and I were fighting, <laughs> so I kill her off. It's so gruesome. It's really profound. And I read it to kids sometimes when I do school talks, and they just look at me kind of in horror and awe, I think, that I was writing these kind of stories when I was their age. And then what happens to the survivors, the heroes in the book? <laughs> Nova and Kathy and Lucas are the three heroes, and Mr. White. The four of us survive to the end. And I think we cut, this is so revolting, but Lucas is cut up into little pieces and fed to this stuff called Grow It, which they realise is kind of reproducing rats at a massive sort of rate. And suddenly there's thousands of Lucases and they're kind of boy and girl Lucases and they're just <laughs> repopulating the earth. It's just so disturbing. And as you got older and you continued to write, what were you writing about in high school? Oh, dear. Angst, love, um, fury, fury for my family. Uh, I wrote this poem about breaking out of prison, <laughs> like just classic sort of teen fueled, angst-ridden poetry, song lyrics, a lot of, you know, and I used to I used to play the keyboard and I used to write a lot of music on my keyboard and write these awful songs and try and sing them, which I have an awful voice, so that was painful. But I wrote a lot when I was in high school. But the first piece I published was, um, I think, as a way to get back at my English teacher who had great hopes for me and sort of saw me as this, you know, potential kind of quite talented writer. And she said, write me a persuasive text. And so I did. And I wrote a persuasive text about how much I loved graffiti oh. in order to kind of punish her for wanting me to do something. And then I think to get back at me, she sent it to The Age uh, and The Age published it as a part of their sort of young writer series they were doing on a Sunday, which my dad was so proud. And he went and bought hundreds of copies at the newsagents to send to everyone. And then a couple of people rang up and said, we're going to come and graffiti your house because it had my name in my <laughs> suburb. So That was a good payback then. It was a good payback. It got me back. But it was also very thrilling to see your name in print, I think, as a, as a teenager. So, Did it, it make you think, though, about the effect of publishing it did. something? It did. It, made, it was that nice checkpoint, I think, where I went from the jelly people where I could write dark and horrible things about anyone I liked and kind of think I could get away with it and then wrote this piece in The Age and obviously people were reading it and I realised there was an audience and once there's an audience, they have an, you know, they have a kind of response to it, I think, so. And when you weren't writing your own stories, which authors were you devouring? Oh. Apart from Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, a lot. I still have all of her beautiful books with those beautiful covers on them. Um, Judy Bloom. I still love Judy Bloom. I think those stories still work. My daughter read them all when she was going through, you know, teenage years. And I, I just think, yeah, they, they still hold out. And Deanie, that beautiful book about the girl who's got scoliosis, fighting her mother because she doesn't want to be a model, is such a beautiful story. And they're thin books. You know, we don't write books that thin anymore. And I think there's a really interesting kind of trend away from those very narrow stories. But they were beautifully precise, emotional kind of feelings, I think, for, for that age. What is it about something like Judy Bloom's writing, which is timeless? I think it's about feelings, and I think and I think tapping into how we legitimately feel at a certain age, and it's often at those change ages, those tween to teen ages, which is what I write about because I love thinking about what is impacting on us, how we are changing, how we are thinking about ourselves, how we are forming identity. And I think when I think back to my childhood, that that age, that 12, 13, 14, trying to work out who I was, was such a huge part of my life. Thinking back to your childhood, what kind of house did you grow up oh, in? Oh, the best house. I think about this house all the time. So we lived sort of 30 kilometres northeast of Melbourne in a little place called Wonga Park, which was an old orchard area. Um, big properties. We didn't have a big property. We had a quarter acre block on a hill. And so it was very steep, our block. And my mum had left school very young, um, growing up in housing commission and they couldn't afford, she just, she had to go and get a job. So she decided when they bought this block to design a house. And I love that she just went, I can design a house because I'm, I made my wedding dress and I'm really good at drawing and I can design a house. So there was an architect called Alastair Knox who was designing houses in that era in Warrandyte and Wonga Park. And mum modelled the house that we lived in on his designs. Beautiful, like all glass fronted, facing north, slate floors, recycled timbers, recycled materials, old Hawthorne black bricks from an old church that had kind of been pulled down. And it was just a really beautiful, warm space to grow up in. And 
it lived kind of in the bush and they planted all native trees around it because they were absolute hippies at that time. <laughs> and they used to, they had this little lemon-scented gum tree that they used to get up in the morning and cover in, in a plastic bag during winter so the frost wouldn't get it. And so this beautiful tree kind of covered the front of our house. And and there were echidnas and blue tongues and, you know, it was just a beautiful place to live, I think. Given that she designed this house herself, what was it like in terms of the flow and livability? Yeah, it was it was the house that I would now love to live in, I think. So the kitchen was in the middle of the house. Mum was a beautiful self-taught cook and food was a really big part of our lives, I think, even when we were kids. And there was no heating except for an old fire, a big, old, big open fireplace that was right in the middle of the, the house. And it was just kind of this very warm space. It was quite an open space, which I guess was a very 70s design, that kind of mid-century, you know, open plan kind of house. And then the bedrooms were all down one end and there was a study up the other end where I used to sleep over with my boyfriend, (laughs) far away from my parents. Your mum designed a house. You've mentioned that she was an amazing self-taught cook. What other things did she teach herself? She sounds very creative. Yeah, she was really creative and amazing given that she left school so young. She was a really beautiful sewer. So she used to sew a lot of my clothes and she used to sew all my brother's clothes hilariously. But my brother was a real snob about clothes when we were at high school. So he used to sew (laughs) jag labels on the outside of his clothing in order to pretend that they were not homemade. I, however, did not mind. Um, She used to knit and kept going and knitted and made my kids' clothes actually when they were born. Um, So she could sew, she could knit And then as an older person, she took up floristry and taught herself how to be a florist. And she was a photographer. She had her, she built her own dark room in, in the ensuite. The ensuite was turned into a dark room really early on in our house. And so she used to teach herself photography and then taught me photography. And so she was just very good at kind of thinking, I want to learn something. I'm going to learn it. This is, you know, predating the internet, which I find amazing, really. And how um, was her relationship with your father, your dad? Um, was he good with supporting her incredible <laughs> projects like the house? Yeah, I think so. He was. He's. I mean, he was always working, I think, when I was a kid and also because he worked in the city. So it was an hour commute each way and he would drive the freeway, happily loved that drive. So I don't, he was around a lot on the weekends, but not so much during the week. And on the weekends, he'd sort of take me to netball. But sort of during the week, it was sort of mum pottering at home. And I remember that was sort of the dominant kind of feeling of my childhood, I guess, my brother, mum and I. Yeah. Your dad is in advertising. He is, was. Any cameos for you in his oh, ads? Oh, yeah, so many. It was great, actually, because he worked in advertising uh, for my whole childhood. And he was it sounds like such a weird thing to say, but he had such kind of morals about the ads that he would do. Like he would never do the Liberal Party and he would never do cigarette smoking and he would never, like there was all these things that he sort of wouldn't write ads for. What did um, he do? Uh, he did Life Be In It with Philip Adams. He did a lot. He did lots of things. He and Philip worked, yeah, he worked with Philip Adams for years, but Advance Australia, Barbie. <laughs> I had lots of Barbies. I was the envy of all my friends. Um, I had the Barbie perfume factory, which was huge. Well, what sort of roles did he give you? Oh, well, background, because I couldn't act. It was very clear, Lisa, that I had no talent. But I remember being in the Super Sally ads, which were for Flag In back in this, I don't know, that must have been the early 80s, I think. And we, my brother and I would have to slide down the swimming pool, down the slide into the pool and make a big splash. And, that, you know, we'd be in the I background. I thought I recognised your face from somewhere. <laughs> Famous I was. Uh, the Activite ads with the Activite Monster, which is this awful chocolate milk, which I never wanted to drink, but um, we had tins and tins of the stuff at home. Did you love acting? I loved acting. I was desperate, desperate to be an actor. And then I went to St. Martin's Youth Theatre and did some classes. <laughs> it was just very obvious that I was the worst in the room. Was it obvious to you? Or? It was obvious to everyone. <laughs> I must say it's a shame because Nova Wheatman is a great name for an actor. It is a great name for an actor, isn't it? What were you named after? Oh, well, well, I was named after a, two things. I was named after a pickle, which I always thought was Polish, but I think it was Czechoslovakian. So this beautiful kind of Polsky or Gorky, I think they're called. And also when she was pregnant with me, when she was in hospital, she was reading the American feminist magazine called Nova. And she just went, that is a great name. It was a great magazine, actually. I still have a few copies at home that I found in op shops over the years, but it's a fantastic magazine that was really revolutionary for the, for its time. And 
I think she just, she never wanted to call me a sort of ordinary name, but then they gave me Jane <laughs> as a second name, just in case I didn't like Nova. But her name was Nola. So it was Nola and Nova. It felt like tap dancing twins. Not so good. So Nova, outside of writing, reading and trying to act, what was it like for you growing up? I think it was really idyllic, actually, thinking about how easy my childhood was. I think it was an idyllic childhood. Uh, my parents were middle class. They sort of, you know, positioned themselves like in a in a way that things were easy for me, I think. I never did any, this is appalling to admit, but I never cleaned a toilet or did any housework until I moved out of home. Teenage years, not so much, but probably not for a lot of people. But as a younger child, it was outdoors. It was riding horses. It was playing netball. It was swimming in the Yarra River. It was a beautiful kind of earthy childhood, I think. And at what age do you think that you would recall knowing that you wanted to be a writer? I think really early, like really, really young, probably, yeah, halfway through primary school. It was, I knew even then that it was the thing I was good at. Creativity was valued very much in my house and words particularly were really important. They were, they were a currency. They had that sort of weight to them. And we had this kind of mum, I mean, they built a kind of library room where there was just so many books and it was a really big part of my childhood. Say more about this idea of words being important. How did that come out in your family way? Dad's father was, he was a, a forestry officer, but he was also a kind of linguist. And he used to, he used to read the Oxford Dictionary and he'd send them letters every year about all the mistakes that he'd found. <laughs> and we would have brutal Scrabble games, like brutal, you know, where it was almost to the death if you misspelt. And spelling was everything. It was so important in my family. And actually recently I went to Christmas with my dad's side of the family and my cousin explained to my kids that we he, we come from a long line of pedants and if you get a word wrong, that is it, you're out. And they have spelling bees on Christmas Day. Like that is still part of my family. And you went to university and you started studying? Psychology. What, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> what happened then, Ava? Well, what happened was my parents, neither of whom had gone to university, thought maybe I should get a qualification in case the writing thing didn't work out. Uh, fair enough. Parents do that. I didn't want to be a psychologist ever. And How long did you last? I did my degree and then I started honours and two weeks into honours, I thought, what am I doing? And I bought a, <laughs> I bought a scratchy, a Tatslotto scratchy, and I won $1,000, which was a huge amount of money in the, I don't know, early, whenever it was, 90s. And I thought, that's a sign. Dropped out that day. <laughs> Never went back. Thought I can fund myself as a writer. And just really quickly realised that, uh, yeah, all I wanted to do was write. And so I started publishing bits of poetry and whatever I could, really. So what was the first book you published as an adult? Oh, the first book was called The Haunting of Lily Frost. And it's funny because I didn't, that wasn't the first book I wrote. I'd written multiple books before that, some of which were adult novels, um, which had gotten close. I had agents and I couldn't quite get across the line. And then my daughter was a baby and it was five in the morning and I was writing this story, which was not Lily Frost. It was a book called Frankie and Jolie. And I thought I was writing an adult novel. Apparently I wasn't. <laughs> who, picked, who, who said it wasn't? Oh, the publisher said, no, this, this is a young adult novel. Oh, okay. Right. Thank you. Good. The publisher says, oh, this is a young adult. Uh, so how did you explore that voice then? I don't, I just think I kind of naturally fell into that form. And then I'd, I published three young adult books quite quickly and then realised that actually I don't really like writing for teenagers. Not, not that I don't like writing for teenagers, just that teenagers don't actually read a lot anymore. And I wanted an audience, I think. And I, and so I started writing a book called The Secrets We Keep. And I started writing it because Aiden was having a breakdown, actually. And my daughter was really struggling to understand what that meant for her dad. So I started writing about this character called Clem, whose mother was depressed. And I'd come home and I'd give my daughter pages and she'd read it and she'd edit the tone and the the kind of feel of the story. And she'd say, no, Clem's not feeling that. And it was really to give her a way to access what she was feeling in a safe way. And so we started being able to talk about her feelings through me writing this story. And I finished it in like four weeks, which was the quickest book I'd ever written. And I sent it to my publisher and she said, yep, I'll take it. It's so right and ready. And it was just, I think, born of 
a real experience for me, but also just I saw the character so clearly she just came alive in my head and I realised that was the age group I should be writing for. With the first book that you published, did your parents get to see it? Oh, no. Sadly, my mum had died about six months before I signed the contract, so she didn't even know that was going to happen. And it felt really, I felt really mixed about that because she was always the person who was in my corner. You know, she was the one who'd pay the bills when I couldn't pay them. And she listened to me. She read everything I wrote. But I do sort of wonder if in a way I had to push myself to find an audience outside her in some ways. So maybe it was, yeah, maybe it was always going to be easier once mum was gone. I don't know. don't know. Why? I don't know. I just feel like I I was always very happy having her as a reader and as my supporter and maybe having all of that made me not seek it out in a professional context in the same way, I, which sounds odd and psychological. What do you think it would have meant to her? Oh, it would have meant everything. But I think also, you know, in a funny way, I think she always kind of thought it would happen. So maybe she always had faith. I don't know. At the launch, actually, it was beautiful because the launch was all about her, even though she wasn't there. And all of her friends came and it was very, she was very present in the room, even though she, yeah, she was missing. And that was beautiful. How did you and your partner Aidan meet? Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, I saw him in the window of an op shop, (laughs) trying on a suit. And I would have been about 22. I was in Albert Park and I lived around the corner in a share house and I was with my flatmate and we were walking down the street and I stopped and I looked in and I went, who is that man? Who is that? Look at that quaff of black hair. (laughs) Looks like Morrissey. Um, And I said to her, I'm going to meet him. We're going to go out. I was so sure. Something about him. Well, it was just uncanny because I don't believe in love. I don't believe in all of that stuff, but it was an uncanny kind of moment. It took years. <laughs> it took me years to wear him down because then I turned up at the theatre about a couple of months later and he was there. <gasps> and I took that as a sign. And then about maybe a couple of months later, a friend of mine said, come and work for my theatre company. We won't pay you, but come and do some publicity. And I said, okay. And I turned up and there was Aidan sitting at the head of the table. And I thought, oh, this is so bizarre. Anyway, he did not notice me or have (laughs) any interest in me at all for six years. For six years? Yeah. No, maybe not that long. Four four years, maybe four years, five years. I was very patient. And I used to drive past his house and his friends talked about it for years that they'd be like (laughs) on the balcony going, there she goes again. (laughs) (laughs) So wrong. Anyway, I just happened to be there all the time. So when did you finally get together? The night of my birthday when I was 26. Yeah, so it was only four. It was four years that I wore him down for. What drew you to each other? I think storytelling. I think a shared choice to live our lives in the way we wanted to live our lives, even if that meant that it was financially really hard and that we wouldn't have those conventional kind of wins that most of our friends were having. And I think he was really moral and I really loved that about him. He was very loyal and very moral and he had a kind of very strong moral code that believed in the way people should be treated. And I always really respected that. He was extremely intelligent and an amazing storyteller and the only person that I could just explain a story to and he could fix without even reading it. And I just think his brain was so fascinating. And we were actually very different people. But yeah, we just shared a kind of, I don't know, just a desire to create story, I think. How are you different? Oh, so he was the youngest of 10 and I was the oldest of two. And he'd grown up in a kind of big, big, messy, sprawling Catholic family. And I'd grown up very protected and kind of loved and, you know, with a lot of time from my mum. So we had that kind of childhood differences, I think. I always found his family kind of very romantic and, you know, just this sense of large, of just that kind of bigness of it that I loved. Um, He was really clean. I am really not. Uh, He always thought that he probably had ADHD and I think he probably did. And I think that probably the way he approached creativity, he was very, um, he would have a contract for it to write a play and he would put it off and put it off and put it off for months and months and months. It would drive me mad. And then he'd sit down and he'd write a perfect, almost perfect draft that would barely change. Whereas I write hundreds of drafts and they just refine. So even the way we approach work was very different, I think. Did he also read a lot? 
No, he was not a reader, which I really struggled with, actually, because I read every day. It is a massive part of my life. And he read maybe one of my books, but he didn't even read many of my books. And I, and at times I found that really hard to accept. But I think he was a really slow reader and I actually think probably dyslexic. But he used to read this nonfiction book and it, I think he read it for like five years and still didn't finish it. And it's fascinating, isn't it? It's a, such an interesting thing because that, that did really frustrate, frustrate me for a long time. And then I just accepted that we were just really different about what where we sought the world from was just a different thing. Well, in fact, you're a morning person and he Yeah, was I'm a, a morning person. He was night. a night person. I was an extrovert. He was an introvert. I liked being involved in everything. He liked watching everything. Like we were very opposite in many ways, I think. And then how did you resolve that in the end then? For a long time, I tried to box him into what I thought I wanted in a partner. And then I just sort of at some point went, it actually doesn't matter. It's really not about that. On air, online and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Nova, you were telling us about your partner, Aidan. When did he find out that he was sick? Um, So it was 2018, I think, diagnosed in 2018. And it came as a complete shock because we had gone camping. He wasn't feeling, he had back pain. He'd gone to the doctor, the doctor, you know, he started doing Pilates to try and fix it. Like it was that sort Mm. of classic. And then he went back to the doctor and he said, oh, look, I've got a bit of a lymph node up. And the doctor went, oh, it's probably nothing. We'll just do a biopsy. And they did. And they found metastatic prostate cancer, you know, that was fairly well advanced at that stage. So it was a pretty shocking diagnosis to get given that he'd had no symptoms really. Metastatic yep. means it spread, it spread through yeah. the body. So it had spread into his lymph nodes, not his organs, but it was in his bones, uh, which explained the back pain. So he started treatment pretty quickly. Um, He wore an ice cap to try and keep his hair because that was the thing I think that our kids really struggled with the idea that their dad would lose his hair, which is, you know, you don't kind of project forward 18 months to him actually dying. But so he wore an ice cap and kept his hair. And that was just so obviously so painful for him to have this ice cap on while he was doing chemo. But yeah, that was May of 2018. What was he working on when he found out that he was sick? Yeah, he was doing a play called The Architect, which was about uh, euthanasia <laughs> and the right to choose when you die. Weirdly, like yeah. just could not have been more bizarre as a piece of work. So I think at opening night, he'd, uh, he was having chemo and that play was written because he'd been cleaning houses and he met an amazing woman who had a brain tumour and they talked a lot about death and her right to want to choose and so it was about the time when the Victorian legislation was coming in. And then that play was on and it sort of, it was such a weird thing for us, I think, because he wanted to talk about that right. And I really struggled with the idea that you would choose to end your life, even though I fully believe that you have the right to. So it was a really interesting kind of ethical quandary, I think, for us. How at peace was he with his diagnosis? Not at all, I don't think. No, I really don't think he was. I think he struggled between being relieved that it wasn't the kids, who'd, which is such a bizarre thing to kind of go to, well, at least it's not them, at least it's me and not them, and being really angry because he just sort of, you know, after he'd had a breakdown, he had just sort of really recovered and come back and was better than he'd been in a long time, I think, psychologically. And his work was really good and 
we were stronger and happier and things were going well and it just felt like such a kind of derailment of all of those things. And I think he he was not an optimist and it's such a hard thing to know, I think, when you have a a cancer diagnosis that is so grim to know how much optimism to hold on to, how much hope and how much pragmatism and where to sit with all of those things. And I think I am naturally an optimist. I am very hopeful. I reset every morning thinking things will be good. And I really tried to keep that kind of buoyancy. And I think at times that really annoyed him. And so I think we struggled in that because we came at it so differently. I think he felt like he was letting us down. I think he worried about our future. You know, we didn't own a house. We didn't have any kind of assets or finances or anything that was going to protect me and the kids. And so I think he worried about the position he was leaving us in, which I found really difficult because I never saw us like that. I always saw us as equal. I always, and I I sort of didn't fear that. I thought that will be fine. We'll sort, you know, that's not something to be thinking about. By the time he got very sick, we were in you know, heavy Melbourne lockdowns and he was bed bound with cancer throughout his body, really not being able to access hospital support because if he did, the kids couldn't see him. So he was home with me as a nurse and it was really hard to nurse him, love him as a partner, parent the kids, watch them try and do online school. You know, my daughter was in year 10. I was trying to work. It was just a mess. And so there was a lot, I think, that I regret about that time, which is probably pointless, but I think you always do play it out over and over and think, how could I have done it better? And I think I could have, we could have done it better, but maybe that's just life. Where did Aidan find some sort of outlet during that time? So he joined a choir, which was just a really beautiful probably the only beautiful part, I think, of his sort of 20 months of cancer. And it came because he was watching, we were at school watching a high school concert and our daughter was in a choir and a friend of ours was there and she said, oh, Aidan, you should come and join my choir. Aidan could sing beautifully, used to play guitar and write songs. And so he did. He turned up to the Abbotsford Convent and joined Pagan Angels, this beautiful mishmashy choir of just excellent people. And since since he's died, I've started having contact with the choir leader, who's just the most magnificent person. And we've talked a lot about why people seek out choirs. And I think people do come to choirs, or I think singing as a, as a healing kind of process is very special. And I think often people come to choirs because they are, you know, there's been trauma or there's been loss or there's been sadness or they're going through things. And so I think that communal sense of singing with people that you don't necessarily know nor ever get to know, other than just standing next to them and singing is a really healing thing. And I think it was a really healing thing for Aidan to do that. How quickly did he take to it? He loved it. He was great at it. He was great at it because he can sing and he was funny. And so, and also he just, I think he just found a place and they always need men. (laughs) So if you can sing and you're a man, join a choir. And how else did choir inspire Aidan? So it inspired him to write a play called The Heartbreak Choir, which was his last play, I guess, the last play that he wrote. And it was about, yeah, the healing aspect of joining a choir after a trauma has happened in a small country town. So it sort of, I guess, drew together his experiences of growing up at different times in country towns. He grew up in tiny places like Teddy Waddy West, which I'd never heard of till I started dating him. And that kind of beautiful joy of singing together and not needing to all be the same. I think that's what a choir is. That's where a choir is so special. We are so often just around people who are the same as us. And I think the idea that you are suddenly doing something that's very personal and exposing with people you don't necessarily share values with is really wonderful. Nova, did you ever see Aidan perform in his choir? No, which is just the saddest I've written about this because I did. I do find it really, um, really sad. Actually, he was due to sing the lead in the Nick Cave song "Into Your Arms" at the Abbotsford Convent with his choir. About when was it? it was late 2018, November 2018. We were setting up the school fate that day, and he came in, and we were supposed to. The kids and I were supposed to go with him and watch him sing, 
And he came in and he said, no, you can't come. Uh, I can't sing. If you're there, you'll have to stay. And I was really devastated because, and, and I didn't know at the time that it would be the last time that I'd be able to see him sing, but it was devastating not to be able to go and watch him sing. Why did he say, don't come? I think he found it, the idea of us watching him do something like that. He just said, I won't actually be able to get through it. I'll cry and I don't want you witnessing that. I just want it to be, I'll go and do it and then I'll see you later. It was recorded, so I've heard it and it's beautiful. It's so beautiful, but always really sad that I didn't get to see it. What's it like viewing and listening to that recording? It's a very odd thing hearing someone's voice after they've died, I think. It's more, for me, it's more profound than seeing photos of them. And I remember after mum died, not having much access to her voice. And I have access to Aidan's voice because, you know, he was an actor and there are videos of him. But hearing him sing is a very different thing. And it's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's really emotional. And, and the kids don't want to listen to it. They haven't really heard it, but I've listened to it a few times. Why is it so profound hearing a voice after someone's died? I don't know. There's just something about it is more alive to me hearing a voice. Like it's more a sense you can hear the conversation more, the kind of the intimacy of what you had with them more than if you watch something or look at something that's flat, I think. Um, even a video is not the same for me, but just hearing someone speak, it's just a beautiful thing, I think. When did Aidan die? Uh, in September 2020, it was six days before my 50th birthday. <laughs> it was a very hard week. Um, yeah, so lockdown, we, it was really tricky because people couldn't really come and see him. So I made the decision we'd have a week where friends could come and farewell him. And so they had to all get tested and isolate and then come with masks on and it was one of those very beautiful weeks that I look back at and am very relieved that I disobeyed government regulations and let that happen because I think if people hadn't been able to see him, you know, friends didn't watch him deteriorate like you would normally when someone's dying. They went from seeing him well at the beginning of lockdown or still mobile to weeks away from or days away from dying. And I think that's a very hard thing to then process. So it was a really beautiful week and he was exhausted by the end of it, but it was just one of those special kind of, you know, just aimless time, which we lost during lockdown, I think. How did your latest book, The Jammer, come forth from this very hard time? So I was contracted to write a book that I originally was going to write about roller derby and gender. So my character was going to be a boy he was going to be struggling to be the only boy on an all-girls team. And that was kind of the story that I had in my head. And then I started writing that story and I wrote like three chapters and the boy was just boring and I couldn't <laughs> find his voice and I had no interest in this character. And it was about six months after Aidan had died and we were all struggling, the kids and I. And I was talking to my kids really found it hard because they'd gone back to school at the end of lockdown and people didn't know their dad had died and they didn't want to tell anyone. So a lot of it, I just think I was living out those kind of conversations. And then I started writing this girl called Fred who played roller derby with her mum and they were great roller derby players. And then her mum died. And I just knew that I had to write a grief book because it was the only thing I was going to be able to write. I just actually couldn't write anything else. I actually had to play out how that felt. And I also, I think, wrote a mum dying because at that time I kept thinking, okay, Aiden's gone. What if I go too? And I was terrified that I was going to die. So I was just having all these medical tests all the time because I was just completely neurotic that I'd be next and the kids would have no one. So I think it was my way of playing out worst case scenario and also finding a way to explore what my kids were feeling in a sort of safe writing space. Hang on. Roller derby. <laughs> Why roller derby? <laughs> Why the coolest sport on the planet? Um, <laughs> Tell me about roller derby. Well, my obsession with roller derby, I think, started when I watched the Drew Barrymore film Whip It and I just thought, oh, how can a sport be so cool? And then my son was playing mixed netball and he'd been in the same team since he was eight. 
And he turned 13 and they booted him out, the club booted him out because he was a boy and he's not allowed to play with girls anymore. And I was like so frustrated for him. And as someone he knew was playing derby and she said, oh, come along and have a look at it. And as soon as he got on skates, it was just like, that's what he wanted to do. So both my kids started training as derby players, but my daughter was older. She was about 16, 15, 16. And she hated that she wasn't good at it because that's her personality. And so she gave it up after about a year. But my son just loved being on skates and just for him, it wasn't about playing derby. For him, it was just about going as fast as he humanly could. And the great thing about derby was because he'd started skating just before lockdowns, every day during lockdown, he and his friend would go to the car park and roller skate. And that was their way out. And actually, that's what he was doing the day Aiden died was roller skating. So it kind of felt like roller skating was such a part of our lives, even though I'm not great on a pair of skates. <laughs> What's really interesting is that Derby, people think as being quite violent, yeah. but in the book The Jammer, there's a profound identity and belonging, a sense of belonging uh, in this. And I wonder whether you've tied that mm. into this feeling of where am I in these moments of grief? I think there's something about when you're grieving, and I found this too, when you're grieving to be in your body as much as you can. For me, it's swimming. For him, it's skating as fast as he can. To be in your body with people who who you trust. And I think the beautiful thing about roller derby is, as, as much as it is obviously a very kind of contact-driven sport, the juniors spend years learning how to play before they're allowed to actually bout with any kind of contact. There's all this respect And there's all this kind of inclusivity about the sport that I love. It's diverse, it's inclusive, any gender, any body type. It's beautiful, it's small and it's grassroots. And people know each other. The coaches know him, they love him, they look after him. They gave him a scholarship so he could play after Aidan died so we didn't have to pay. You know, they are incredibly involved and invested in the family aspect of what a sport should be. And I think because it is small, it's not like playing a big sort of, you know, soccer club or netball club. It's tiny. There's only, I think there's only 14 players at Arlo's level at the club he plays at. And so they know each other pretty well. And also you've got your arms squashed against each other. So you're very physically intimate. And it's, again, it's like being in a choir in a way. It's choir on wheels. It is choir on wheels. Yeah. They don't sing. They should sing. Let's get them singing. That would be even better. Um, But it is sort of like being in a choir because you're being really intimate with people you don't necessarily know well and they're all different ages. It's beautiful. It's a great sport. What did you discover about parenting through grief? It was really hard, I think, particularly because it was lockdown. We couldn't have a funeral. We didn't have any sort of service for Aiden until uh, December of last year, so 14 months, whatever, 12 months after he died, Um, which was really hard, I think, because there was no coming together of people. There was no sort of mass conversation about who he was. And I think that was really difficult. And I I think helping children when you're also grieving and you're also feeling all sorts of, you know, other complicated emotions is really complicated and hard. And to try and keep them feeling safe and feeling loved is very tricky, I think, because they are obviously concerned and aware that you could now go to. And I think that's a really big fear for kids once they've lost a parent is that everybody could die. Oh, it's suddenly a thought that anyone can go. I think that was a really hard thing for them. And what about Aidan? How did he feel towards the end? Had he grieved his own death? I don't think so. I don't think he ever fully reached the point that you always expect someone to reach or that you sort of, you know, you watch a film about it or you read a book about it and someone gets to that point. I don't actually think it was ever that neat for him. And I think he was frightened and angry and sad right up till the very end. And I, I, you know, I think he didn't talk to the kids at length about things. I mean, he was physical with them. Like often I'd come in and my daughter would be lying in the hospital bed next to him and they'd be kind of cuddling and stuff. Like there was a physical kind of aspect to his love for them. But I don't think there was ever those, uh, there was never an ability for him to really talk about how he felt. And perhaps that's just an impossible ask for someone. I don't know. 
So where did he get to? Um, I think he he got to a point where he was on heavy drugs and that just takes over in a way and it kind of it 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 softens someone it it reminded me of my when my grandmother was really old it felt like that it felt like that point when someone gets to a point where they're kind of aging and quiet and not demanding that was the point he got to aiden was very good at being demanding up until probably 2 weeks before he died i was making coffee at 3 in the morning some nights just going i really hate you right now why do you need coffee um he drank 20 cups of coffee a day so you know big coffee drinker so he was good at kind of requiring things of us until probably a couple of weeks before he died and i think that was the shift was just this kind of softening and he did, he did soften and he was funny up until probably three or four days before he died. Um, he had a go at me one night where a friend of his dropped in and he wanted a drink and I said, I'm going to hold the cup because every time I give it to you, you spill it everywhere and then I have to change all the sheets. And it's really hard changing the sheets when someone is in so much pain, they can't get up. <laughs> well, he swore at me in a hilarious way. But it was, you know, there was a kind of, there was a, there was, glimmers of him, of who he was up until the end. But he got calm, I guess, and that was never him. He was never a calm person. And I I think when you see that change in someone, it's quite confronting because you expect them to kind of hold a a kernel of who they are to the end. And maybe that doesn't happen. I don't know. What do you still not understand about grief yourself? I think that I don't understand why I can't cry often when I feel like I should be able to. I don't understand how it's changed me. I think it's changed me in really profound ways because I feel this great sense of loss about all sorts of aspects of my life that I never would have thought about before Aidan died. I feel incredibly sad at the idea that my daughter at the age of 18 and finishing high school will move out. I really desperately don't want her to leave, even though I also, of course, want her to go on her own journey. There's a real sense of loss and longing that has shaped me in a way, I think, because of Aidan dying. And I still don't understand um, how we process it. How do we learn to accept that someone is gone? I still go looking for him. I still hear his footsteps coming in, bringing home a packet of chicken chips at night. Like I still hear him in the house and yet he's not there. How do we, how do our brains know that someone is actually gone? That's a really odd thing to kind of process, I think. And recently you got to hear Aidan's voice again in a different way. On stage. I did. And I, it was such, um, it was such a fantastic thing because the play was supposed to be done in 2020 and then lockdown knocked it over. And then luckily MTC was smart enough not to try and program it for last year, which was at the time frustrating, but I'm so glad that they held on to it. So the Heartbreak Choir was on this year. And I wasn't planning to go until opening night and then the preview was on five days earlier and late in the afternoon I just went, what am I doing? How can I see, how can I let an audience see this before I do? I've read this play, I've talked to Aidan about it at length, I know this work really well and I have to be there. And so I was too late to arrange a ticket so I had to go and buy a ticket which just was so funny. And so I snuck in and I watched it on my own and it was such a great thing to be able to see on my own without the burden of opening night and having the kids there and feeling really like I'm responsible for how all of these people are feeling, just to watch this first performance. And I saw the play 10 times in the season, which I've never done. I've never seen a piece of work that many times. And Aidan used to see his work, you know, dozens of times. And I always, I could never understand how you could sit through the same piece of work over and over again. But watching it so many times was just the most magical thing because I just started to see his, the way his creative brain or his playwriting brain was working behind the work. I went from watching the work as a piece of theatre, hearing the choir, which made me cry every single time I saw it, to a different sort of understanding of what the work was. And 
what a beautiful gift to be able to see someone's play after they've gone. And for the kids too, like I just think it was an incredibly special thing for them to be able to see. They both saw it multiple times. What emerged for you when you were watching his play? I just sat there thinking I'm so in awe of his ability to read people and I think I was always really struck by that when we were together. Like often I just embark on a new friendship with just like incredible gusto and he'd be going, just a word of warning. I'm not sure if this is good. No, no, it's going to be great. And he'd always read those situations much better than I would because I'd just go in all, you know, guns blazing and he'd be like, no, 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 no. And I think watching the play, there was something about that play that was so about, because he wrote it knowing he was going to die, because he wrote it with all of the mess of the Catholic Church that was whirling around his head and had in many ways, I think, contributed to his the way he felt about death and loss. And it was a heaviness and his feelings about growing up in a small town. There was so much about him in that play and it felt very realised and finished. And as much as I don't think he ever got there contemplating his death to talk to about, but I think he got there in terms of a sense of work. And I think that that play really, for me, is feels like the final kind of full stop in his creative career. And I, I love that. I love that it's funny and it's uplifting and it's a celebration of people. And I think that's a beautiful kind of end of a journey in a way. Thank you, Nova, for being my guest on Conversations. Thanks, Lisa. My guest on Conversations has been Nova Wheatman. Her newest book, The Jammer, published by University of Queensland Press. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Molly. And I'm Carl. And we're the hosts of the kids' podcast, Short and Curly. Each of our episodes tackles a curly question about the world. Like, should we try and bring back extinct animals? Is it your fault if your room is messy? And is it ever okay to lie? Plus, we have a lot of fun along the way. Well, we make a lot of fun of you, Carl. It's a podcast to get the whole family thinking and talking. Short and curly. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.